0: I'm Bob Schieffer. And I'm Andrew Schwartz. And these are conversations about the news. We are in the midst of a communications revolution. We have access to more information than any people in history. But are we more informed or
1: just overwhelmed by so much information we can't process it? These conversations are a year-long collaboration of the Bob Schieffer College of Communication at Texas Christian University and the Center for Strategic and International Studies in Washington. Now, everyone knows Bob Schieffer's a newsman, but not everyone knows how he became an anchor man. He wrote a song about it. Let's have a listen.
0: Well, I left this job that I just took, started practicing my sincere look. They said I had the face of a man with heart. They wrote me some lines, taught me a style, drew a happy face on the script where I should smile and the key demographics went right off the chart to say they pay me good, a whole lot better than Stuckies ever would, and a cute little stage manager gives me all my cues. Selling tractor hats and pumping gas, that's all part of my long ago past. Now I just sit there and read the news. He became a TV anchorman, a TV anchorman, he joined the Eyewitness team, with that Channel 4 or Channel 9, with Cut.
1: so now you know. Welcome to Bob Schieffer's About the News podcast. Usually Bob does the interviews and I play the Ed McMahon role. For those of you listening too young to know who Ed McMahon is, think Mika or Joe Scarborough. As Bob's faithful sidekick, I get to chime in as we examine the U.S. news media landscape and interview the top people who report on the news about the news. But for this episode, the tables are turned. I get to interview Bob Schieffer about the news. This is a beautiful thing, because as much as we all love to hear Bob ask questions, we also wanna know what he thinks about the news. And we're talking to Bob at the perfect time. We're recording this podcast on day two of the Democratic National Convention. Bob's in Philadelphia covering it. This is the 25th national political convention that Bob has covered. The first convention he covered was the Democratic National Convention in Chicago, in 1968. Chicago in 68 was tumultuous to say the least but the Republican Convention Bob covered last week in Cleveland and this Democratic Convention in Philly are to say the least unruly and unusual. We'll talk about both conventions and how the media is covering them uh, and in this era of hot takes when things are changing minute by minute we certainly have a lot to talk about. Bob you're in Philly on day two of the DNC it's been rainy hot and rambunctious there The media is all in one place trying to jockey for position with sharpened elbows. Um, This week did not start off particularly smoothly for the Democrats. Was that surprising to you? It was. I mean, it was really
0: surprising to me. I mean, think about this. This was going to be the demonstration of unity. It was going to be cheerful. It was going to be bright. It was going to be a contrast with the Republican convention, which, to say the least, was pretty dark and uh, tumultuous also this was going to be the great contrast to this and then what happens on the night before the convention was supposed to open this email mess this uh, new email scandal broke out this one hillary clinton didn't have anything to do with that's for sure but it involved emails uh that had been uh, uh leaked uh by apparently uh the result of a hacking into the democratic national committee headquarters uh there were allegations that it was the Russians who were behind this. Uh, I have no uh, confirmation of that for sure. But uh, as you know, Andrew, uh, we know that the Russians have the ability, at, at the very least, to do this. But anyway, it threw this whole thing into a total uproar. Before it was over, Debbie Wasserman Schultz, the uh, head of the Democratic National Committee, uh, lost her job. Uh, Bernie Sanders uh, demanded that he be able to speak in primetime last night instead of uh, before primetime because he was so upset about all this. The DNC apologized to Bernie Sanders. Uh, Bernie Sanders, uh, at one point, his uh, supporters became so enraged by the whole thing, he had to ask him to calm down every time Hillary Clinton's name was being mentioned there were boos, and I mean really vociferous booing. Uh, it finally began to turn uh, uh, before we got to primetime when Sarah Silverman, the, uh, the uh, comic uh, who was a Bernie Sanders supporter, finally said when these people were booing and so on, look, you're being ridiculous. This is the real world. By the time we got to uh, Michelle Obama's speech, uh, it began to turn back to Hillary Clinton. Uh, Michelle Obama made, by far, uh, the, the best speech of uh, this evening, uh, I mean, in, uh, of this convention. It really seemed to have an impact. Now, these Bernie folks are not going to go away. They're still going to demand th- certain things. Uh, I think I'll probably uh, have a demonstration or two tonight during the roll call vote. But at least uh, the Democrats uh, finally uh, seem to be uh, coming together. And I think the pivot point last night, was a speech by Michelle Obama.
1: Well, tell us about your impressions about Michelle Obama's speech. I mean, everybody today and last night was saying "floatus for POTUS," wanting her to run for office at some point, um, saying that she was so eloquent, um, gracious. What was about? What was it about her speech that that sort of calmed the waters? I think it was real. I
0: mean, she actually seemed to be speaking from the heart, and she was speaking uh, from. From her own experiences, and uh, you know, she has had a very high approval rating throughout the uh, Obama administration. That is often the case. Uh, uh, the first ladies often have a higher approval rating uh, than their than their husbands. It was certainly the case during the Bush administration. Uh, at some points of the Reagan administration, that might have been true, but generally speaking, the first ladies also have a uh, ha- have a good uh, approval rating. But she is a good speaker to start with, and uh, the speech was well-crafted. It made the case for Hillary Clinton. And I I had said earlier uh, that I thought uh, that her speech might be the most important of the night because I said, you may hear uh, Hillary Clinton being booed by other speakers, but I can't believe that when Michelle Obama mentions Hillary Clinton's name that people are going to boo, and they didn't. And uh, so... By the end of the night, uh, then when Bernie uh, Sanders came on, uh, you know, his folks still cheered loudly. But uh, it, it was a little bit different convention than it had been uh, at the beginning of the day. Now, you know, winning a convention is one thing. Winning a general election, uh, it's much more, more complex. But uh, I think uh, uh, Michelle Obama, with her speech and the way things turned out last night, Bernie Sanders could not have been more generous. In his endorsement uh, of uh, of of Hillary Clinton, Uh, I think it will at least make the Democrats a little more united coming out of this convention uh, than it appeared uh,
1: as late as yesterday morning. They were going to be. Well, you know, the polls are saying, at least right now, that 90 percent of Bernie's supporters are going to vote for Hillary. But that leaves a a very angry 10 percent. And as you said, they're planning a demonstration tonight. Do you think that this is going to be, you know, a nagging hindrance for a long time? Uh, I think it's going to be there. Uh, How uh, much of an impact it has, uh, whether it
0: proves to be a distraction, uh, we'll just have to see as the uh, as the weeks and months roll by during this fall campaign. But I do believe that the uh, Democrats are in much better shape today than uh, maybe they were at least uh, uh, over the weekend as far as uh, unity goes. Uh, Hillary Clinton has her problems. This is not going to be easy. Uh, I think one of the things, I think the main thing that she has to be very careful about is this whole idea of security uh, and, and the threat of terrorism. Uh, uh, Donald Trump, I mean, I think one part of his, of his strategy here is to underline the dangers that America is facing and the dangers that the world is facing, uh, the dangers caused by uh, terrorists and ISIS. Uh, People, and every survey shows this, really are nervous and concerned about about the safety of this country. I think what Hillary Clinton has to be very careful about is that she doesn't try to discount or dismiss the threat of terrorism and saying, And say, you know, everything is okay, all that's overblown, we don't need to worry about it, we're a great country. We do need to worry about it, and I think that's how most people feel. They may not, uh, uh, you know, they may not agree with Donald Trump's solutions and what he's proposing to do about it. They may not think waterboarding is necessary, but they know the threat of terrorism is real, and I think she has to. Uh, make sure people understand that she recognizes the threat. I, I think her tack will be something like, you know, we didn't have to become the Nazi party in World War II to defeat the Nazis. We defeated them uh, by overwhelming them and by uh, staying with our, our own values. And I think that's what she, I think really that's going to be the great uh, the great thing for her to do. Uh, to to make sure uh, people understand. The other part, of course, is that uh, these uh, polls continue to show that a large number of the American people simply don't trust her. I think uh, the CBS poll says 67%. I think there's a CNN poll that says 68%. Whatever the, the number, uh, she is not trusted by a large uh, number of Americans, and she's going to have to find a way to overcome that.
1: So she's not exactly the candidate that, say, 70 percent of the people want to pick up the phone at 3 a.m. as she used to be. Well, the Trump
0: campaign, the, the Trump campaign is built a while, about one thing and one thing only, and that is to drive up Hillary Clinton's negatives. Uh, to be uh, <laughs> maybe crude about it, if they can prove that uh, she's worse than he is, they think they can win, and uh, a lot of people are telling Hillary Clinton she has to do the same thing. She has to show that uh, he's worse than she is. Uh, but whoever uh, wins that uh, contest is is going to is going to win that election. Uh, how she does that, I, I'm wondering. If somewhere down the line she does, she might just simply have to have a news conference talk about this uh, email business uh, in, with more candor than perhaps she has uh, in the past. Uh, but something, she's got to find a way to uh, to overcome that if, if she's going to have a chance to win, I think.
1: That is a long-term issue for her, to be sure. I mean, some of these other issues are, are quick and dirty. I mean, we're in this era of hot takes where things change hour by hour. But we're also in an era where we just saw you were just at a convention last week in Cleveland, the Republican convention, um, that was unusual by most accounts. You've called this election cycle the most unusual election cycle in your lifetime of covering the news. Um, both conventions so far seem really unusual. How is covering? Well, they, yeah, I was going to say, how is it covering these conventions different from past years?
0: Well, uh, the main way it's different is the the role that social media is playing in all this and i think uh, we cannot uh, discount that i mean uh when news breaks it breaks all at once and everywhere and sometimes it might be true and sometimes it might be almost true it's sometimes it's uh, it, it, it will prove to be uh, totally false but i mean you know we've seen these horrific uh events uh, these terrorist activities these uh these shootings of the police and all of that. I mean, this news breaks immediately, and uh, people are seeing pictures that they've never seen before. Uh, they're hearing uh, reporting coming not always from reliable news sources. And uh, so it has to be almost dealt with immediately. And, uh, and uh, you know, the, the mainstream media, I think our job uh, more than ever is to sort out uh, what's true and what's not true, what's irrelevant and not irrelevant, and try to find a way through this great maw of information to help people know what we think is the actual story, what's really going on, uh, what what we have checked out. Uh, We don't broadcast things at CBS News until we've made an effort to to find out if they're true and i think most of your mainstream publications the new york times and the uh, washington post uh, do the same thing you you don't have to agree with anybody's uh, editorial policy but when you see something on the front page uh, of the big newspapers or you hear something on cbs news you assume uh, we hope people assume that uh, th- that it's true that we've gone to some trouble to check it out but we're overwhelmed now, and, you know, political coverage is just a part of it with so much information that what worries me and one of the reasons we're doing these podcasts is are we being overwhelmed with so much news that we can't sort it out? And that's one of the things that uh, we're trying to, uh, uh, to come to understand uh, through these, uh, these various podcasts that we're doing.
1: Yeah, one key difference is, is it certainly doesn't allow for a lot of deep thought when you have to react quickly and you have to know whether the, the latest thing coming over the, the, the wire or over the social media is true or not. Um, you, you've talked about how traditional news is covering um, day-to-day, hour-to-hour, minute-to-minute. How do you see traditional news covering it differently than uh, digitally native news uh, media platforms, newer platforms? Well,
0: we're all doing more than just uh, the traditional way we used to do it. At CBS News, we used to put on the CBS Morning News and the CBS Evening News with Walter Cronkite. We reported news on the hour on CBS Radio. Now we've become more than just a radio and a uh, television company. We're, we're like many of the media companies now. We've become a, a media company that uh, services various platforms. I mean, we now have our own digital uh, wire service, basically. We're we're a wire service. You can go on your device and see what the latest news, just like you used to do uh, in the newsroom when you'd read the Associated Press Wire, the United Press International Wire. CBS News is now uh, doing 24-hour news uh, on our digital uh, uh, network, for want of a better term to identify, it's CBSN. Uh, you see the same people on CBSN that you see on CBS News only you can get that on your, on your uh, device, on your phone, on your computer. Uh, you get it only in those places. Uh, and then, then we also uh, still, uh, you know, take care of the, the morning news and the evening news on uh, broadcast television. But everybody is doing that now. Washington Post reporters often carry a video camera with them when they go out to, uh, uh, to cover a story. They file stories for, for their digital network Uh, we're all learning to do a lot of different things that (laughs) we didn't know were our responsibility uh, when we got into this uh, business I mean I started out uh, as a newspaper reporter back in the Fort Worth Star-Telegram back in the old days and I mean the idea that we had do something to go on television I mean we you know we did everything we could to keep television from finding out what the news was we were we were trying to get scooped for our newspaper now now everything has changed, and everybody has to be multi-platform. Exactly, and and, and that's that's what it's all about. Uh, this is the Washington Post is not a newspaper company anymore; it's a media company. Uh, the, uh, the same with the New York Times. Uh, CBS is not a television company anymore; it's a, a media company, and uh, all of us are having to get used to that. It wasn't easy in some cases. Uh, but but we're learning how to do it because we know that's what we have to do. I mean, you know, the, uh, the newspaper industry, The 112 newspapers, I think it was, uh, have closed, just shut down over uh, yeah, the last right. 10 years. Uh, so uh, we're seeing uh, a whole new way to look at the newspaper industry. Uh, we spent a lot of time. Uh, you know, worrying and thinking about uh, what was the future of paper newspapers. Uh, I think, and I've thought for the last couple of years, that was probably the wrong thing to be worried about. I mean, it's, the important thing is not whether newspapers are printed on paper or whether they're printed on celluloid or whether you get them over your mobile device. The important thing is the content. Are they, if, if we have a newspaper that's only on digital devices. Uh, is it going to be a newspaper that adheres to the same standards that those of us in uh, in uh, the traditional news media have uh, come to adopt uh, in recent years? And that is, do they not publish something until they've checked it out and determined it was true? Do they still have editors? Uh, do they still keep an eye on local government uh, like paper newspapers used to do. I mean, if we come to the point in America where we no longer have some entity performing the duties that we have come to expect from local newspapers, and that is mainly to keep an eye on local government, we'll have corruption in this country at a level that we we have never seen. It has already changed politics because you know, uh, what's left of some of these newspapers now, they just don't have the staff to cover politics the way they used to. Uh, You'll see where they don't even have a city hall reporter sometimes. They send somebody to cover city hall and go to the, you go to the city council meeting, but nobody who's there at city hall every day. Uh, and people in local government are already beginning to notice that. I tell you, if there's not a reporter around, Things happen that wouldn't happen otherwise, and that—that that is where the real crisis in American journalism is, as far as I'm concerned.
1: And it's incumbent upon those folks, just like it is for you all at the conventions, to make sure that the content that you're producing is high premium quality. Do you see different—and, and, you know, at the conventions— there is a, uh, the, the traditional media outlets have the most experience covering conventions. They're supposed to produce high-quality premium content. Do you now see newer digital platforms like BuzzFeed, the Young Turks Network, cutting into uh, network coverage and, and mainstream newspaper coverage? And um, can you see uh, them, for instance, cutting into your time spent with key sources?
0: Well, I think I think this. If they're not uh, uh, cutting into it, they're certainly supplementing it, and I think in many cases, uh, you know, they're getting stories sometimes that we don't get, and uh, uh, they're getting scoops. They're trying to do the same thing uh, that we are, and uh, I think I think we have to recognize that, and uh, you know, the more the merrier. I would never be one to say that what we need are fewer fewer news. <laughs> News uh, organizations. Uh, I think uh, news organizations are good, but we have to recognize that they are uh, a competition uh, for us, and and that's why we have to have something to uh, to uh, be the same on social media that they are. It's not you know that we have to try to dismiss them as competition or or try to block them as competition, but we have to have an arm of CBS News that's just as good. Uh, doing what they do, uh, and and that's that's how we compete with them.
1: Well, and if we've learned one thing from our podcast series, Bob, it's that they're very, very good at what they do. For instance, we talked earlier this year to BuzzFeed's uh, managing editor, Ben Smith, and um, Cenk Uger of the Young Turks Network. We know that they're really good at what they do. You know what?
0: I'll tell you something. They're better than I thought they were. Uh, And that's one of the things that I've, and I mean that as uh, as a sincere compliment to them. Uh, I didn't know much about them. It's generational. They're not the news sources that I necessarily uh, depend on. But talking to the people that are running these organizations and what they're doing, it's just like the Young Turks. I mean, (laughs) these guys are wild. I mean, they don't speak the same language that I do, but after doing uh, the podcast with them, I understood that they have some, many of the same values that I do. I mean, and some right. of the same uh, concerns that I do. They feel that our, our political system has been overwhelmed uh, by money uh, and that serious people are turning away from it. Well, that's what I think. And uh, they, they say it in a different way than I say it. Uh, but uh, I think I think they're understanding uh, what is going on. And I, I think they're making a real contribution.
1: Let's talk about social media. So often now we hear people say they read it or saw it on Facebook, even if it was a traditional media outlet or a, a new digital platform like BuzzFeed or Young Turks that posted or provided the content. Twitter um, is even carrying CBSN, CBS Live during the conventions. That's pretty new. Um, What kind of presence do you see Facebook, Twitter, Snapchat and other social media platforms having at these conventions?
0: Well, uh, I think it's uh, I think it's uh, very, very, very important. I mean, for CBSN to be carried on Twitter, uh, that just adds to our circulation. And the power of journalism uh, has to do with its circulation. Uh, And and it always has. I mean, When I went to Vietnam, when I was a reporter for the Star-Telegram, I came home and I said to myself, well, you know, these guys are, you know, sure, some of them are better than I am and all of that, uh, but they're just basically reporters like I am. They go about it in the same way. What sets us apart is they have circulation. Uh, What I was writing about and reporting on uh, would have an impact in Fort Worth, but when you work for the New York Times in those days, you were read in places other than New York. You were read in Washington. You were read in uh, other news, I mean, in other capitals around the world. And so that's that's the power. You know, that's what all of us in journalism have to remember. Uh, people don't cozy up to us. People don't tell us things. Uh, people don't try to uh, help us out because they think we're cute or that we have a good personality. They, they talk to us because of the circulation that we have and the ability that we have uh, to uh, I- influence events and, and to uh, spread the word, as it were. And that's, that's one thing all of us as reporters must always remember. Uh, we represent powerful news organizations, and if we didn't,
1: uh, we might have a little harder time getting in any door, whether at the local level or at the national level. You focused a lot of your commentary on CBS News primetime um, over the last week at the Republican Convention and this week at the Democrat on how well each candidate is doing in unifying their party. What are your observations for Republicans and what are your observations for the Democrats?
0: Well, uh, the Republicans came out of their convention uh, unified, the people who were there, generally were members of the Trump party uh, the way I saw it uh, most of the uh, the uh, traditional Republicans the traditional office holders most of them didn't come. I, I don't I would shouldn't say most many of them did not come I thought it was a, a party uh, convention notable more for the people who didn't come as it was for those uh, who did show up I mean think about it you had Two, the two former living Republican presidents did not come. The Bushes, George and George H.W. Bush, they weren't there. The two most recent Republican candidates for president, uh, Mitt Romney and John McCain, they did not come. Any number of uh, Republican office holders simply uh, did not come. Uh, John Kasich, which I thought was maybe the most significant no-show of all. I mean, think about this. This was the post-governor. The Republicans held their convention in Cleveland because Ohio is a battleground state. No Republican has ever gotten to the White House without winning Ohio, and yet the home state governor, John Kasich, did not show up at the convention. He was in Cleveland all week, but he never came to that convention because he said he did not believe in what Donald Trump stood for And he did not agree with his message, and he thought if he had shown up that he would have uh, been seen as a hypocrite. Uh, He said uh, to several of us, look, i got to go home at night and face my wife and children. Uh, Whether I came or not, he said, uh, whether it made any difference or not, I just didn't feel right in coming. So I don't know if we have seen a Republican Party that is sort of split into three here. We know the traditional Republicans were not there. Uh, Ted Cruz, who was a uh, uh, leader of the very conservative part of the wing, at least he sees himself as that, and certainly he does have a number of followers on that side, came to the convention and was booed when he refused uh, to endorse uh, Donald Trump. Now, I know this directly from the Trump people, they knew what he was going to say. They knew three days before that he was not going to endorse the president. They made a uh, endorse Donald Trump. They made a calculated decision not to stop him. And basically what they did, they let him walk into an ambush. They let him walk in. It was almost the classic, you know, we've got the high ground. Here comes the enemy uh, when he get here and he gets here open fire. They knew what was going to happen. Now, you could argue, and I think it would be a very good argument, that what Donald Trump should have done was to find a way to bring Ted Cruz uh, into the fold. Uh, They could have either not allowed him to come up there, they could have let this go unnoticed, uh, but they didn't. Uh, In many ways, it seemed more important to them to get even with Ted Cruz for opposing him during the primaries than it was to try to unify the party. Is that a good strategy? Uh, Maybe it'll work. Maybe it won't. uh, But but that was their thinking. So so you had the traditional Republicans who were not there, the right wing led by Ted Cruz, who were basically humiliated. And uh, then you had those in the middle, which I now call the Donald Trump wing of the party or the Donald Trump party. That's who's going out uh, in into the uh, fall campaign. Uh, Does the Republican Party, uh, does it survive this? Uh, Does it come back together after this election? If Trump loses, uh, if Trump wins, does it uh, change the party forever? I know for sure that from here on out, the Republican Party is a different party that I've been dealing with over the almost, well, more than 50 years I've been uh, covering uh, politics. It's a different Republican Party. It is anti-trade. It is anti-immigration. It is anti-intervention. It is a party that will have questions about NATO and whether we need to even be a part of it anymore. Uh, You can make a legitimate case uh, for, for all of those things if you like, but this is not the Republican Party and this is not what the Republican Party has dealt with in the past. So uh, we'll we'll see what happens to the Republican Party, but I think it may have been changed forever uh, by the
1: Trump uh, by the Trump uh, nomination. If you had said four years ago that an immensely popular governor of Ohio who's hosting a convent, whose state is hosting a convention for his party wasn't going to show up. I mean, that's just inconceivable.
0: Yeah. I mean, I, I would have said, are, are you a high school senior and this is your first course on American politics? Uh, because yeah. you don't know anything about uh, the politics and, and how it works. I mean, it, it was an absolutely uh, stunning, a stunning development. On the other hand, uh, I'm not sure that this is the strongest point for the Democratic Party. After all, think about this. I mean, we know that fewer americans identify themselves as either republicans or democrats now this is a very weak point for both american uh, political parties but while you had uh, this uh, cavalcade of of people 17 of them uh, running for president on the republican side you basically had a republican party that came up with only one legitimate uh, candidate and that would be Hillary Clinton, like her or hater, she's certainly qualified to be president. But she was basically the only one who had any kind of a national reputation, uh, who had any kind of uh, training to be president. Martin O'Malley, small state governor, very nice guy, had absolutely no uh, national following and, and uh, you know, went absolutely nowhere. And her main challenge turned out to be from someone who'd never sought office as a Democrat, uh, Bernie Sanders. Uh, that doesn't really speak well uh, for the uh, Republican Party, in my view. I mean, Bernie Sanders is 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 a fine man. Uh, Hillary Clinton is a fine woman. But the fact of the matter is, uh, is is that all that this political process uh, could produce? And uh, I think what it underlines, Andrew, is the political infrastructure of both. Parties. The political infrastructure uh, of, of this country uh, is in pretty bad shape. We talk about our roads and bridges clump, crumbling. I think the political infrastructure is in worse shape than our roads and bridges. The system has been totally overwhelmed uh, by money. And in my view, uh, opinion clearly stated, uh, intelligent, uh, serious people one after another, are just saying, I don't want any part of this anymore. And so they're not seeking public office anymore. They think there are other ways to spend their time. They don't want to have to spend the time that candidates have to spend simply begging people for money. And until we can kind of change that, uh, what we're left with now are the people who are willing to do what you need to do to get elected. And it is, I'm not saying they're bad people, But it's a different group of people that have sought office uh,
1: in our country uh, in the past. There's no incentive uh, or no apparent incentive for young people to go into running for office these days. There might be some. uh, Daniel Lipman of Politico told me and you uh, just last week that young people still want to work in policy and they want to work as they do here at CSIS or on the Hill, but they don't want to run for office.
0: No, and and I think that's right, and I think that's the greatest indictment of all. Uh, You have heard me say when I was a little boy, uh, my grandma thought I was going to be president of the United States. Uh, That's because that's what all grandmas thought about their grandsons. And I always ask the question, how long has it been since you've heard anyone say that I hope my child grows up to be a politician? You don't hear that anymore, and to me, that is the single worst indictment
1: of our political system yeah to the contrary my wife says don't you dare encourage any of our three sons to run for office well there you go what does hillary need to do though this week to you know trump saw a bump from uh the republican convention and nate silver of 538 even puts it at 54 percent now that he could win the election um what does hillary need to do this week to regain the the, uh, the high ground I think, you know,
0: I think she needs to show that he's worse than she is and uh, drive his negatives up. But I think the other part of it is she has got to find a way uh, to overcome this suspicion that people have uh, that she cannot be trusted. Uh, And I don't know how she does that, but I think that's that's the single biggest problem that she's got to overcome as she goes into this election.
1: Do the Democrats rolling out their big guns this week, last night Michelle Obama, we're going to see Joe Biden, we're going to see Bill Clinton, we're going to see Barack Obama. It's it's an impressive lineup. Is that going to help her? I, I don't think it hurts. I surely don't think it hurts, because when you
0: compare that to the uh, Trump campaign and the Trump convention, uh, you saw very little of that. What you did see is a whole lot of Donald Trump. You saw him every night. I mean, from... From that uh, World Wrestling Federation uh, opening, when he came on the stage with the smoke, with the smoke coming up out of yeah. the uh, out of the thing, and he was in silhouette. Somebody asked me uh, while we were there said, uh, "What do you? How does he top that on uh, the night he makes his acceptance speech?" And I said, "Well, maybe." Maybe he'll slide down a pole from the ceiling. or I mean, I don't
1: know how you top that. But, yeah, he had uh, to hit somebody with a chair like, like he did when he used to come on the wrestling. He did become involved at one point with the World Wrestling
0: Federation, and he oh, and Vince yeah. McMahon had a so-called feud and, and all that kind of thing. And he said that uh, McMahon uh, congratulated him on on. On the on the entrance, but uh, I'll tell you, it was a wonder. I'd never seen anything quite quite like that. But so much of the time this year, uh, Andrew, I've never seen anything like some of the things that happened. I, I told somebody the other night. I said, if I had uh, if I had a hundred dollars for every time i said over these last ten days, man, I've never seen anything like this. I'd be well on the way uh, to becoming a hedge fund operator or something. <laughs>
1: Well, are either of them good politicians, Hillary or Trump? Uh,
0: I think so. Uh, I think uh, I think Bill Clinton is the real politician in the Clinton family. He's always been a better politician than Hillary Clinton. She's always been more of the wonk. Uh, she's, uh, I think her strong suit uh, has always been uh, a policy, in understanding policy. She, she has actually told people, you know, friends, I, I'm, I'm really not good at the politics side of it. Uh, Trump, Trump is a master showman, and he is a master of timing. But he has done things during this campaign that makes you wonder about uh, his his ability at politics 101. Uh, just one example: I mean, when the FBI director was slicing and dicing uh, Hillary Clinton over the email scandal, calling her careless and all that sort of thing, uh, Trump comes back and. Attacks the credibility of the FBI director, and then manages to throw in a few compliments about Saddam Hussein. Uh, first rule of politics is when your opponent is being put up in front of a firing squad, you try not to get in the way. You try to stand aside, and uh, he managed to take some of the headlines uh, from all of that. Uh, the FBI's uh, conclusions about her email handling, uh, by by topping that story and. Uh, Believe me, I will never understand why any American politician would find some way to compliment Saddam Hussein. I, I don't see the political
1: uh, uh, efficiency or efficacy of that. Well, Trump knows he's topic A for the media. Do you think he's got a deep-seated fear that one day he won't be topic A, and that's why he keeps popping off with these things? Somebody said the other day to me, Do you suppose that he's
0: decided that he really doesn't want to be president and he's trying to figure out how to say something to disqualify himself forever from being uh, considered uh, presidential timber? I have no reason to believe that's true. But I have to say, uh, when he says some of the things he says, you kind of have to wonder about it.
1: Well, we're all shaking our heads at both candidates at both elections and all the things we've been seeing. And Bob Schieffer, thank you for this invaluable perspective from the DNC and from what you saw last week uh, in Cleveland. For Bob Schieffer, I'm Andrew Schwartz. If you like this podcast, leave us a review on iTunes. Visit us at CSIS.org and check out the Schieffer College of Communication at schieffercollege.tcu.edu.